Welcome to Our Lives with Shannon Fisher, where we discuss everything that brings us life. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Our Lives with Shannon Fisher. This is your host, Shannon Fisher. We're talking about an important topic today. Uh, lack of affordable housing is quickly becoming a national emergency. And I have a writer who has written a book called Sunbelt Blues, The Failure of American Housing about this affordable housing crisis. Andrew Ross, welcome. Hello. Thanks for having me on your show. And so I was shocked to read that a minimum wage earner can only afford a one-bedroom apartment in 145 out of the 3,143 counties in America. That absolutely floored me. Uh, and, and you did research in Florida in the, the 192 corridor, which is right there in Disney World's backyard. And you kind of use this area as a, a microcosm for the country because it has a lot of the same uh, issues that are happening all over. And it's not your first time doing research in the area. So tell me a little bit about why you picked this location to, to highlight the housing crisis. Sure. Yeah. And and let me just add that to your statistic that you cited there in the intro. It, the, it's probably worse than that now because in the course of the pandemic, we've seen housing prices soaring and rents heading in the same direction. And sure. so, you know, what was a crisis before the pandemic has indeed, you know, become more of an emergency for people. So I had... Um, you know, I, I I spent time in uh, in in the region in the 1990s, living in Disney's town of Celebration. I wrote a book about that called The Celebration Chronicles, and I uh, I promised that I would return to the town 20 years after, which I did quite dutifully. <laughs> um, and uh, and I found some stories in the town which uh, which I found um, that I had to tell. Uh, one of them is about the the takeover of town center by a private equity firm that really had no prior experience in community management. And uh, they, they've done what private equity has done all over the country, wherever these firms have entered the housing market. And uh, But the residents fought back in this case. And so um, that part of the book is about uh, taking on Wall Street landlords. <laughs> but I also found, Shannon, that uh, uh, discovered that Celebration High School, you know, it's a fairly affluent town, Celebration, uh, at the time was enrolling more homeless students than any other school in Florida, so uh, which shocked me. And so I, you know, followed the kids outside of town and found a lot of them living with their parents, families shacked up in dilapidated budget motels on uh, Route 192, which is the, the main drag in Osceola County. Yeah. So yeah. one thing led to another, and I the, the book developed from there, and I <clears throat> I, I thought it, Central Florida is a very good lens through which to view the national housing crisis, basically. Definitely. And you talk about following the school kids. You, you report that 1.5 million kids in 2018 were experiencing homelessness. Uh, the, the kids in public school, 1.5 million. That 
absolutely floors me. And and you also kind of highlight how there was a huge transfer of property wealth from, from individuals to corporations, uh, really largely following the 2008 foreclosure crisis. And the, the uh, investors came in and, and grabbed up property. So tell me a little bit about how that has impacted the crisis we're seeing today. I think it's a major factor. Um, it was a you know result of the Obama administration deciding to uh, to sell scads of foreclosed homes to uh, these private equity firms back after the crash, and 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 they they turned them into rentals and jacked the rents up and um, and took a lot of homes out of the inventory that might have been affordable homes otherwise. Everyone thought it would be a short-term play on their part, but uh, they're actually, they're still at it. One in six homes uh, purchased in the U.S. this year in the second quarter were bought by uh, corporate investors, and in some markets, as many as one in four. And they also go after other um, classes of real estate in addition. And so that has had a major impact on housing availability and housing prices in general but of course you know it's only one of the factors complex reasons why we have a housing crisis um, and and they demand a comprehensive solution absolutely and you talk about how ineffective government planning uh property speculation and poverty wages have done a lot to um to create this. And you also talk about poverty wages right there at Disney World in the area you were studying. And I was shocked to see that Disney World actually helps their employees apply for food stamps. Uh, so so how does the, the Disney World uh, employment situation uh, affect this? Yeah, it's, it's a big factor, obviously, in the region. Uh, Disney World is the biggest um, uh, single site employment center in the country, actually, 61,000 employees. So uh, the company's in a position to, uh, you know, determine the wage floor for the whole region. Sure. And, uh, and as a result, Orlando Metro has the lowest uh, medium wage of any metro region in the country. And in the book, um, and so, you know, a lot of the cast members, as they're known at Disney World, a lot of the employees end up living in these motels uh, because they can't afford um, a rental apartment. So I ended up um, <clears throat> in the book covering the $15 minimum wage campaign that uh, the Disney World unions waged and, uh, and won. They were successful and, and that led uh, to Florida voters last year voting for a $15 statewide minimum wage. Um, it was a 50% hike on the previous minimum wage at Disney World. Right. And, it was, and we've seen it across the country, this $15 campaign. Unfortunately, $15 still doesn't close the housing gap. In Osceola County, for example, you would need at least $19 of a wage to afford a, a small studio apartment. And so uh, we still have a ways to go there. That is amazing. And, and, and you say that there, you have to make less than $20,000 to qualify for 
subsidized housing, but the market does not cater to people who are, are at that minimum wage level, uh, who make less than $25,000. And so you talk about, you know, passionate labor being exploited. And I, I think that holds true for everyone in, in the arts, any industry that people are really chomping at the bit to get into, uh, employers know that they can pay as little as they as they want to pay. You talk about the hotels, um, and there are a lot of different levels of experiencing homelessness. And even within the community of people who are homeless or who do not have a home, some who live in the, tells, in the hotels consider themselves homeless and some don't. And little tiny details matter when it comes to receiving housing assistance. Um, so tell me a little bit about how HUD comes up with who they're going to help and how they're going to help them. That's a good question. The people living in, in the budget motels are, uh, there's a big concentration, obviously, around Disney World. Uh, these motels have become uh, non-competitive in the hospitality market uh, mm -hmm. because they're outmoded. But there's also a large population nationwide <clears throat> living in these motels, wherever they've been bypassed by um, interstate freeways and the like. It's a largely invisible population. And sure. <clears throat> it includes a very a very broad cross-section of, of a population. I mean, I've, I lived in the motels when I was doing my reporting. And uh, everyone from, you know, middle-class families that have, uh, their houses have been foreclosed on, uh, to elderly retirees subsisting in government checks, uh, economic fugitives from the north, climate refugees from the Caribbean, and, and and a lot of hustlers who are you know pushing pushing a relief from the pain and the hardship. So it's a very rich spectrum of humanity, and and I wanted really to report very closely on the lives of these people because uh, they you know homeless or or the near homeless are, are often considered in the abstract. We don't get a lot of close-up uh, um, reporting on, on on their circumstance and their lives. Definitely, and it was it was great to get a, a really intimate look at the lives of of some of these people and how they got there and. The, the games that both the renters play and the hotel owners play to kind of get in and out of, of legal loopholes. A lot of hotels have trouble evicting people who come and stay and don't pay. Um, and so it's become, it's become a legal issue trying to get legislation passed, which was passed where you were studying, um, that they have to actually go through court to evict long-term tenants um, as if they were renting an apartment as opposed to a hotel. So coming at that from the business perspective, um, what is a business model that sustains allowing people who are experiencing homelessness to stay uh, in a long-term while not adversely affecting the motel owners? Well, that's a good question, Shannon. Um, the, the hotel owners have become what I call reluctant landlords mm -hmm. uh, because they, they, they do, their revenue now comes mostly from these long-term renters. Um, but they're not regulated like commercial landlords. And, um, you know, they, uh, they, they extract as much uh, revenue as they can basically from these these tenants, basically they're tenants. 
they peg uh, the rental rates to local market rates for for uh, for apartment rentals, and they take advantage of the fact that a lot of those folks just don't have the cash flow that allows them to pay up front the first and last month's rent and security deposit that's needed to to get into an apartment because right. they don't have that lump of cash on hand they have to go to the motels mm -hmm. and in addition when they're in the motels they'll often be asked to to work on the property because the, the owners use their uh, in-kind discount labor uh, to do most of the tasks so it's a it's a it's quite a profitable situation for the for the owners and and not a terribly good situation for uh for the occupants who are not considered tenants and don't have tenant rights as a result absolutely and you you write in the book that a lot of people can say say they consider it a trap they go into the hotel saying that they're you know that it's a transient step that it's just one step either up or down on the ladder of housing uh and a lot of people end up staying there for months and and sometimes years now the things that are contributing to this housing crisis of people not being able to afford to pay rent, to pay the first and last month's rent. In addition to the low wages, you talk about how uh, the commercial room rental, people, you know, Airbnb and, and people who are purchasing homes specifically to rent out as vacation homes, that is contributing to the rising cost in rent. So explain that a little bit. Yeah, uh, well, Osceola County in particular has, uh, very large concentration of vacation home rentals. It brands itself as a vacation home capital of the world, but uh, this is this is a problem that uh, that afflicts almost any location in the country with uh, that is a tourist destination. Um, the vacation home uh, boom in the last decade is sort of piggybacked on the on the Airbnb uh, boom, mm -hmm. and <clears throat> has resulted in a you know, taking off the market a lot of houses that, that might have been available for local needs and are now only available to visitors. Uh, and a lot of studies have shown that when you have a certain uh, uh, volume of short-term rentals in any area, it jacks up the rental prices in, in, in that neighborhood. Mm -hmm. I wasn't able to do that kind of study, but I was able to find out that um, builders and developers are fatally attracted towards uh, the very profitable business of building these vacation homes. And as a result, they haven't been particularly interested in, in building more affordable kinds of housing product. And that's certainly the case in, <clears throat> in Central Florida, I would say. Sure. And, and you, talk about, you talk about how some people are literally homeless that are they're 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 priced out of of not only apartments but even the hotels and they can't afford any kind of shelter and a lot of them build camps in the woods um they're they're considered quote literally homeless by hud um and you say that half a million people are without shelter on on a given night in america and that absolutely floored me um so you did some research and and went in and talked to people in these camps tell me a little bit about what you found out yeah that number by the way is a is a gross undercount that is a hud's official count 
you know, it comes from a point in time survey done once on one night in January <laughs> at various sure. locations. Everyone recognizes that the numbers are much greater than that. So if you are, um, <clears throat> if you find yourself evicted from a motel <clears throat> in the region, your your next neighbors are probably likely to be possums and alligators because you'll be joining the the growing population in the woods and also nationwide. This is a more invisible um, uh, homeless population. Although if you know where to look, you'll find them outside of any commercial strip. In the woods in uh, Osceola County, there are a lot of tent encampments and I spend a good part of the book visiting uh, the camps. Um, they're often organized by consumption choice you know, there are beer camps, meth camps, and heroin camps. Mm-hmm. Um, there is uh, a wide range of people uh, of all types, and a lot of them are either fully employed or part-time employed or working in the economy to some degree. Yeah. Others that are unemployable. But uh, there are quite elaborate uh, tent encampments with, with rules and leaders and um, some fairly... Uh, well-equipped compounds um, with a lot of mod cons. I was quite surprised by uh, by the setups in many of these camps, and also by how long people have been living there. You know, sometimes for more than a decade or so. Sure, and that is that that that's almost unfathomable to someone who um, who has not lived like that. But it really is. There were you know some some places tent cities as as they call them. And so you you talk about how there really is no market-based solution to the problem because the market is not designed to cater to people who are making less than $25,000 a year or people who are unable to work. Um, So what are your ideas about how we get out of the crisis that we're in? So, uh, yeah, I think it's, it, the evidence is pretty clear that um, uh, for the last few decades, uh, our local and federal governments have just left everything up to private builders and developers, market-based delivery. And um, they basically failed to deliver affordable housing for large sectors of the population. And, and this problem, Shannon, is firmly in the middle class now. Mm-hmm. Uh, it used to be lower income people only with these really low low incomes that, that had this challenge, but the housing insecurity has marched right up into the middle class now. So clearly the market-based solutions haven't, haven't worked and we, we need to look at non-market alternatives. Uh, there's a lot of talk about restarting public housing programs. There's a whole range of what's called social housing programs on option. These include a lot of home ownership options that aren't tied to uh, market speculation, so they're, they're permanently affordable. Mm-hmm. Um, we need to have rent controls. Uh, we need to have all of the tools that uh, planners and officials can put in their toolkit. And unfortunately, uh, the kind of comprehensive solution that ties all of these together uh, we should come from the federal government, ideally. Uh, as we know, the federal government's pretty gridlocked right now and almost dysfunctional. So at the time when it's really most needed, we don't have that uh, that federal authority that would, um, you know, override 
a lot of state prohibitions on on exactly mm -hmm. those tools. Sure, and, and and so so if it's coming from localities and from uh, from state governments and and from cities and counties, you you talk about how auto dependent sprawl and density regulations are are ways that local um, governments changing those can uh, can improve the situation. And you also mention that making housing con considering housing a right uh, is is something that would improve the situation. Uh, and so in in closing, one thing that you say is definancializing housing is one way to address the problem. And what do you mean by definancialize housing? Well, quite quite basically, um, I mean, the, the first step would really be to regulate the, the degree of uh, corporate investment in, um, <clears throat> in the housing market, which has had such a huge impact. And the, the Biden administration has uh, recently rolled out a plan that uh, that uh, you know declares that they will only sell um, uh, foreclosed houses to nonprofits and community developers. They won't sell them to corporate investors. Right. Which is a step in the right direction. Um, uh, but obviously, it, it's a much bigger problem than that. Uh, the, the best shot really is to build a critical mass of non-market alternatives so that it's, it's large enough in volume to have that kind of impact overall in the housing market. Um, and, and that needs a lot of ducks in the road to be in place uh, to bring that off. I, I tell you, your book is really interesting and, and really, really eye-opening. So you are participating in the Miami Book Fair. Um, tell me about what you are doing with the Miami Book Fair. Well, much of the Miami Book Fair is is going to be virtual, so I'll be having a conversation, um, which will be accessible online, I expect, with Anna Kaiser from the Miami Herald. And, Great. Looking forward to that conversation, and uh, I'll be doing a few book events in in Florida soon, and in January. Um, yeah, unfortunately, we, we we can't all be in person at, at in Miami for the book fair. Sure, sure, yes, we're we're definitely still in kind of a a mixed model of of in person and um and and online, and I think that it might you know, continue on into perpetuity like that, because for some people, it ends up being very convenient. Well, Andrew Ross, the name of your book is Sunbelt Blues, The Failure of American Housing. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me on the show, Shannon. And for the authors on the Air Global Radio Network, this is Shannon Fisher. See you next time.